0: Father Zabak says, May the glory be filled, may the may the earth be filled with your glory as the waters cover the sea. Lord, that is our hope, and that is our primary concern in life, is that in all things you may have preeminence, that you are the one for whom we live, because it is from you that we receive all things. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, the Father of lights. For from you and through you and to you are all things, and to you alone be the glory. Father, we thank you that you have, by your grace, granted to us the things in this life that you have. Whatever it is that comes, comes to us, we know that you work for your good pleasure in order to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And so we do pray that as we have gathered in this place to sing, Together and to pray, together and to hear the word read and preached, we ask that you would take these things and that you would conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. God, make us the men and women that you desire for us to be, to be lights in the world. And so, God, we submit ourselves to you and humbly ask that you would speak. God, do for us and in us and through us all that we need, which is oftentimes it escapes our awareness. We don't often know what we need. We don't know what is needful, but you do. So God, by your grace, grant it, we ask. Thank you for gathering us in this place. Thank you for watching over us. And God, we ask now that in this time of hearing from you and your, through your word that you would speak boldly, clearly, compassionately, lovingly, and we'll give you the thanks for what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow, good morning, church. I want to remind you of just a couple of things, just in case it slips your mind, or if you're new and you're visiting our church and you kind of uh, have a couple questions. Number one is... um, our bulletins. We don't hand out bulletins unless you ask for it. And so you have to go to the little info booth and you can get a little printed out bulletin. Other than that, we always invite you uh, to little, scan the QR code that's in the lobby upstairs and downstairs. There you can uh, see all the resources and get uh, lyrics and you can get the bulletin and you can get all kinds of information there. Visit our website as well to get more uh, information. That would be um, helpful to you. Uh, just want to let you know too... Um, How we do it? We do baptisms interesting at the church where we've transitioned to doing baptism outside, and we know it's cold, uh, but it's fun nonetheless. We have heaters out there for for folks. But uh, some people have asked the question, "How can I go about being baptized?" And we do have a baptism class that we encourage people, or we ask people to go to, and it's the the fourth uh, week or the fourth sunday of the month is our baptism class it's connected to our membership class and so it's a four week long class uh the first three is about membership uh what it is our church does our philosophy of ministry our values all this kind of stuff why membership is important then the fourth week of that class is the baptism class now you can come to the baptism class and not come to the membership class but we encourage you to just take all four weeks so that way you're in the know. So. That new membership class is starting next Sunday, uh, the 6th of February, and will continue through the month of February, so I want to encourage you to sign up for that, uh, especially if you are looking to become a member and you want to know what in the world that's all about or if you want to be baptized. That's a great way to do it. Uh, For students, um, that is those who are in 6th grade to seniors in high school, we have our student ministry baptism class next Sunday as well at 10.30. It's only a one-class thing, uh, so I want to encourage you to look for that. If you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, um, Hosea chapter two is where we're gonna be at. And if you do have a paper Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, crack that bad boy in half, and uh, you'll probably get to Psalms or Proverbs, make a right-hand turn in your Bible, and uh, work your way through Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, and then you'll arrive at Hosea. So you can't do that on a phone. There's no cracking this thing in half and getting where you need to get. Um, So you miss out on some of that Some of you know this about me. Um, I've talked about this a little bit. I love history. Uh, I was a declared history major. That was one of, you know, 17 declared majors in college. But uh, no, I'm just joking. I only had five. So, history was uh, one of the ones that I loved. I still love history. I still read um, lots of history books just for uh, kicks and giggles. Um, I read biographies. But I also love watching documentaries that are more historical in nature. And uh, one of the ones that um, Heather and I... Uh, watched a while ago when it first came out, but then we uh, rewatched it recently, is a Ken Burns documentary on country music. Have you seen this? Uh, Some of you are like, no, why would I ever watch that? It's 10 episodes. Every episode is like an hour and 45 minutes long, um, and it's really good. It goes through kind of the history of country music. It's very interesting. I'm not a country music person, Um, But I do like history and I like you know listening to that kind of stuff or not listening to country music But watching uh, the biography and I just made some of you really upset. I get that (laughs) Um, Anyways, so one of the episodes in this documentary 10 episode documentary it is entitled don't get above your raisin And when you hear that at first you're like like the box of raisins like, what, what does that even mean? And I don't, I don't know. I'm not from the South. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that language. Um, and so I asked Pastor Boley, uh, who <laughs> is born in Arkansas, raised in Arkansas, who understands that there are phrases in the South that mean something like, oh, bless your heart. That means something. Uh, getting above your raisin, that means something. And so uh, when you get to the meaning of it, like, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means simply don't forget where you come from. Don't forget what you learned about your family and heritage. And also, don't forget how you're supposed to act. Um, You probably heard this phrase or know this phrase, like, I didn't raise you to to act like that. And so that kind of comes from the south of just kind of don't get above your raisin. And the idea is don't start living your life in such a way that you forget where you come from, you forget who your family is, you forget your identity, and you forget how you ought to behave. Don't get above your raisin. What's interesting about the book of Hosea is we're going to enter into a a portion of the book where that phrase could easily describe what's happening in this book. The nation of Israel was born out of bondage. God redeemed them and reconciled them to himself, brought them out of Egypt into the promised land over the course of 40-ish years. During that time, God gave them an identity. God gave them kind of a purpose. God gave them everything that they needed. And so when they came into the promised land, they had the redemption of God as the primary thing about who they are. And they also had God's law to tell them how they ought to live. However, over time, they got above their raisin. They forgot who they were. They forgot where they come from. They forgot who their people are. They forgot who God was. And they forgot how they ought to live. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Hosea this morning is that God has given us an identity, and that identity ought to shape our lives so that we live in light of it. And when we get out of that living, where we begin to forget who we are, forget who God is, forget how God has redeemed us, and we start living in contrary ways. God is so loving and gracious that he will discipline us for our good and his glory because we are legitimate children of his and he is our father and good parents instill discipline in their kids and so that's exactly what we're going to see in the book of Hosea now I'm going to divide this sermon basically uh half of it will be on verse one and uh if you remember what I said last week, we, we always need to know good, uh, good news follows bad news. Bad news is first. We're wretched sinners in need of forgiveness. And lo and behold, God has provided the forgiveness we need, and he welcomes us to himself by sheer grace. And so we're so thankful for that. Today, I'm going to flip-flop that. We're going to put the good news up front, and then we're going to descend into the uh, bad news. Because the nation of Israel already has their identity. But they began to evade it. And God comes to them and says, I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to wake you up. But I'm going to do that through painful discipline. And it's a good thing for us as Christians to hear today that we can understand the grace of God. We can be redeemed people. But we can get above our raisins, so to speak. Uh, We can forget who we are, and we can live outside of what God commands, and so God in his love will discipline us. So let's begin in verse one. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So that's half of the sermon. The other half will be this. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her uh, way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she, sh- she shall say, that's really hard to say. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they use for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wood, my wool, and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. No one shall rescue her out of my hand." I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me declares the Lord. (laughs) That's fun. (laughs) What's been really neat about this series so far, um, I've gotten so much feedback from folks who had the willingness to even confess, and I so appreciate this. They're like, Pastor Phil, I've never even read this book before, Hosea. I didn't even know it was in the Bible. Um, And when I did try to read it, I didn't know what was going on. And I love that. And it's like, yes, one of the reasons why we're preaching through this and teaching through this is because there's so many great lessons in here for us today. What those are is the whole point of why we gather. And that's what I want to do today is show us how as Christians, this text has a lot by way of support and help to get us, if we veered off course, to get us back on track. But it is not without pain, I think. But before we get to the pain, let's start with the good stuff. Verse one, last week's sermon ended where this one will begin, which is identity. If you remember last week, we looked at how Hosea married uh, an unfaithful, sexually promiscuous woman named Gomer. They had children together. Each of the children had a particular name, the daughter of which her name is No Mercy. The son, his name is You're Not My People. And so at the beginning of this verse, we see in verse one, we're picking up where we left off, where God says to the individual Israelites, the equivalent would be like God speaking to individual Christians, and he says to the individual Christians, or he says to the individual Israelites, say to your brothers, you are my people, and say to your sisters, you have received mercy. In other words, remind one another of their standing with God. Remind one another of your standing with God. God is calling Israel back to his covenant. God wants them to remember that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He wants them to remember that he is the one who has redeemed them and saved them. Don't forget it. Because once we forget God, everything begins to go south. The wheels come off chaos ensues and that's why the very last line of the section is they forgot me declares the Lord that's the indictment you forgot me so what is it that they're to remember it starts in Exodus 19 for our purposes anyways the key here is that the people are to remember who God is and what God has done so we see this in verse 4 You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice that phrase, brought you to myself. I didn't bring you to the land. I didn't bring you to this, that, and the other. I brought you to me, which implies relationship. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession from among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And you notice that last little phrase there. These are the words that you're to speak. We're to remind the people, uh, God's people, remind them, this is who you are. You are a holy nation. You are a kingdom of priests. You are God's treasured possession because he has redeemed you from bondage. He has rescued you from slavery. This God has covenanted with you in relationship. And so long as you remain faithful to the covenant that God has given you, things are going to be great. But as we know, if you forget God and you abandon the covenant and you're no longer faithful to the covenant and you forget who God is and what he's done for you, There will be covenant curses, as we saw last week, and we'll see later today. But if you notice the sequence, redemption, then there's covenant, then there's identity, and that sequence is important. God redeems the nation out of Israel. God covenants with them, and because of that covenant, they are given a new identity. They understand themselves differently because of everything that's happened. So what we should do as Christians today is follow this pattern. We need to come alongside of each other and remind one another of who we are in Jesus. If we as Christians have been redeemed by Jesus, entered into a new covenant in his blood that we're gonna share next week at communion, and because of that identity, now God is asking us to live in light of that covenant and that new identity, then we need to remind each other of what's expected of us. Remember who you are, remember what God expects, encourage one another with these things, don't get above your raisin. Don't forget this. And what I think is really amazing is how you see this very thing played out in the New Testament. I ended with this verse last week, starting with it this week. You are a chosen race, Christians. Tell me if you've seen this before. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. And you've been given a purpose, which is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Christians, we need to come alongside of each other and remind each other of who God is, what God has done for us. Another way to say that is preach the gospel to each other. Remind each other of what God has done. Remind each other of now who we are in Christ. Remind what now is expected of us. Because you and I are prone to forget. And we need reminding. We as Christians were once enslaved to sin. But God has redeemed us from the bondage of sin by sending Jesus on our behalf to live, die, and rise again. To secure for all time our eternal redemption that we receive by faith. And when we receive this redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ, we become children of God, legitimate children of God, in whom God places the Holy Spirit to comfort us, to guarantee to us, to seal us, that his grace to us is firm. We have relationship with him. And we are now governed by the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And God now has placed in us a desire to do the things God has commanded us to do and has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do the very things he commands us to do. So that way we are redeemed, covenanted with a new identity and now we need to live in light of that new identity. It's almost identical to the, the pattern that we see in the Old Testament. You tracking with me, church? This is why it's significant, I think, is because in the world that we live in, you and I have been taught and discipled in such a way that we firmly believe that our identity, let me define identity real fast, it's who you are, how you perceive you to be. Uh, If somebody comes up to you and says, tell me a little bit about yourself, how you answer that question is your identity but it's also the place from which we derive value in life. So if somebody were to ask you, what, what gives you like self-worth? However you answer that is your identity. So God gives us this new identity. We're supposed to live out in light of this identity. But the world has discipled us in such a way that it has told us that our identity, who we are and why we have value, is the result of what you have achieved in life. So parents will disciple their children in such a way that their piano recital performance, their athletic performance, their academic performance, kids will feel as though their performance is the cause for their parents' love. And they will feel burdened and they will feel crushed under the weight of those expectations. Middle school students, high school students who are sitting in here, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? It may not even be true, but you feel it from time to time. Your friends will tell you that you're only as valuable as your last game. You'll feel as though your your value is based on what people say about you, how you dress and how people view you, what kind of grades you get. kind of clubs you're in parents you understand this and you understand it from your own perspective because of how we are live in this world where like our job performance um, and let's be honest if our kids excel who does that really reflect on you so that's why you sacrifice and pay the extra money to get all the extra lessons and all this stuff because deep down you know their success really is rebounding to your glory I'm a great parent. I'm like, look at me. I didn't make the high school baseball team, but my kid, man, he's super good. So I'm living vicariously through him and having all my unmet dreams placed on his shoulders. So come on, buckaroo. Hopefully hopefully you make it to the big leagues because I need this from you. When do my kids quit all the time? Who can bear that? So the world tells us that your identity and self-worth is achieved But what we learn in the Bible, through the gospel, is that our identity is received. You don't earn it, you simply receive it. And because that little nuance is true, it makes all the difference in the world. Every day you either wake up having to perform and you feel the burden of it, every day, to make your life count, to kill it, You got to be productive today and if not at the end of the day you're gonna feel like a miserable loser or you can wake up every morning understanding because of the shed blood of Christ and because of God's overwhelming love for me I am already in him accepted and fully welcomed by his embrace and today I will fail the Lord or I will bring him glory and I hope that it's more glory than failure But I know that God's grace is sufficient and he will get me through it and he will uphold me And the father has me and the son has me and no one will pluck me out of his hand Oh, you can live courageously like that Tim Chester in his commentary, he writes this the world around us Tells us that our identity arises out of our activity." But the mercy of God has turned the world's way completely upside down. In the gospel, our activity, that is what we do, arises out of our identity. God has redeemed you. He's given you a new identity governed by a covenant. And therefore, he's asked you to live in a particular way so that what you do arises out of who you are. Who you are is what is called an indicative. It is what is true, what is. What you ought to do is called an imperative. Go and do this. I implore you, I'm begging you, I'm telling you. In the world, what you do determines who you are. But in the gospel, God tells you, this is who you are, my beloved child, rescued, redeemed, and forgiven. And because of that, we behave a certain way. So when we read something like 1 Peter chapter 2, we're supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not so that then we will become a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for his own possession. No, no, no. It's because you are these things that you go and do those things. Do you see the difference? This will come up, as you will see in a moment, and it makes all the difference in the world. We'll start with a little sample. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but it's, man, this will unlock, I think, a world to you that, that maybe will be so encouraging. I hope, anyways, if I can explain it properly. When you read Genesis one twenty eight. What's the first sentence you read? And God blessed them. When God created Adam and Eve, the first thing he does to Adam and Eve is not tell them what to do. When he creates them, he does not firstly tell them what to do. Instead, the first act that God does is he blesses them. And then because of the blessing, he tells them to go and do Likewise, when you and I are renewed or remade in Jesus Christ, the first thing is that God redeems us and that's called blessing. And because of that, then we go and do the other stuff. Or let me show you a different way to look at it. Remember this Exodus 19? Verse four is all about how God redeemed Israel. God is the one who brought them out of slavery. God is the one who covenants with them. God is the one who says, treasured possession, um, kingdom of priests, and holy nation. Now, if you know your Bible, let me ask you this question. The next chapter, Exodus 20, what is it famous for? And it's famous for the Ten Commandments. Now, watch how the Ten Commandments are structured. God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first thing you need to remember is I am God who has redeemed you, who has blessed you. And in light of that redemption and in light of that blessing, verse three, which is the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see the sequence? God rescues, redeems, blesses. Gives covenant, relationship, identity, and then says, Now go in light of those things. Go. Now, did the people do anything in order to earn or deserve God's redemption? No. It was God who brought them out. Did the people do anything? In order for them to have a new identity, for God to bless them? No. God did it of his own volition. And so we can say it's all grace. It was undeserved. They didn't do anything to compel God or force God to act. God just did it. Why? Because he loves. And that's what Deuteronomy chapter 7 is about. I encourage you to read it. Where God says, I haven't chosen you because you're awesome. I chose you for my own purposes because I love you. That's it. It's all grace. Now, when God gave the law to Israel, it was what was to govern them. So remember, redemption, blessing, identity, relationship, and now you need to go and do stuff. Well, what stuff? Well, that's the law. Now, many of us think that when we read the Old Testament, oh, it's all about the law. Yeah, they're trying to earn God's redemption and God's blessing. No, they're not. They already have it. So already secure in these things, they have the law to govern their new identity, how they should live. Not to earn God's favor or to achieve. They've already received all they could ever dream of. Now they just have something which is governing them and helping them to know how they ought to live in light of it. And then we have this interesting text that the law came in, Paul says, to increase sin or to increase the trespass, or to increase your awareness of how sinful you are. But, Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What that means is God instructed the people of Israel on how they could glorify and love him. And should they fail, God also included in the law what they are to do about it. And what's amazing is God doesn't say, you failed me, you better make it up to me by, I'm gonna take a, you know, a piece of your hide. Instead, God says, no, 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 in the law, when you fail, I have so written it that you're gonna substitute an animal so that you by faith will simply bring that animal that I require and it will be the scapegoat or it will be your substitute and you bring it and it will be sacrificed on your behalf. Its shed blood will result in your forgiveness. That's grace. And it sounds a lot like Jesus. When we become aware of our own sin, God isn't expecting us to shed our own blood. Instead, he provides a scapegoat. He provides a substitute, one who is the Lamb of God, as we sung about, and he steps in as our substitute in our place, sheds his blood for our sin so that we can be free. It's all grace. So when the law came, yes, it increased. Oh, man, I am so sinful. (laughs) I don't do half of what I'm expected to do. Oh, no, I'm sinful. Oh no I'm in big trouble and when you realize that grace abounds all the more so that as sin reigned in death grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord in other words as we come to realize our sin more and more we will recognize our need for forgiveness more and more and we will be driven to the only place that can provide true and lasting forgiveness, none other than Jesus himself. So brothers and sisters, it makes no sense for you and I to ignore our sin, pretend it doesn't exist, because God has said, no, I want you to know your sin, confess your sin, because in so doing, you will be compelled to come more to Jesus, and as you come more to Jesus, you will experience more of my grace. Grace, oh, grace, you and I don't deserve anything but death. In fact, when sin reigns, it says in verse 21, death is the result. But I want you to notice this, where grace reigns, how do you know where grace reigns? How do you know whether your life is ruled by grace? Grace. And the way that the wording is put here, the logic here is grace reigns through righteousness, which leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Let me put it a different way. Righteousness is the evidence that one is ruled by grace. Let me say that again. Righteousness is the evidence Of being ruled by grace. You and I have a hard time even understanding what I just said. And the reason is because you and I have been discipled by the Christian subculture to believe that pursuing righteousness or holiness is legalism, that's baloney. Legalism is seeking to achieve redemption and identity by your works. But if you've already received grace, redemption, identity, blessing, and now you're trying to live in light of it, that's not legalism. That's grace fueled obedience. Therefore if you know or if you want to know whether or not grace the grace of God has ruled over you Evaluate your righteousness That will be the telltale sign Titus 2 for the grace of God has appeared Talking about Jesus here bringing salvation for all people notice the grace of God It, it does something by this verb training Jesus the grace of God trains us to do two things one is renounce ungodliness That means if you know Jesus and the grace of God is in your life You are being actively trained on how to say no to sin Secondly is it's training you to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age So it does two things the grace of God in Jesus Christ teaches us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness Continue to read, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. His own possession, do you hear it? And what kind of people ought we to be? Zealous people, people who are passionate about doing good works. Now in this text, are we supposed to be passionate about good works in order to be redeemed? No. The grace of God came, and the grace of God will teach you no to sin. Yes, to righteousness. Because you have been redeemed, have been purified, and are now called to go and do good works. Do you see the sequence? Thank you. There's only one person here who gets this. Let me put this negatively. I hate putting it negatively, but I have to. The evidence of the training work of the grace of God in your life is righteousness which means there's no righteousness. You have not received grace. Does this mean you have to be perfect? No, 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 Because the word here is present progressive in verse 12, training, which means it's an ongoing thing, which implies you're getting better at it. Doesn't mean you're perfect just means to get better at it so you should ask yourself this question am i growing in my hatred of sin and growing in my desire for righteousness that's the question if the answer is no then there's other issues we need to address Because the grace of God is always effective. Now, here's the warning, brothers and sisters. I have to give this warning. We have to be careful. I'm going to read Jude 1 out of the New Living Translation, then we'll go to the ESV, and I'll show you how the two kind of complement each other and help us to grasp this difficult concept, where Jude says, I say this because there are some ungodly people who wormed their way into your churches... Saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. In other words, there's people that come into the church and say, Isn't God's grace amazing? Yeah! And they're like, Yes. And because God's grace is amazing, He doesn't command us to do anything. You're now free to do whatever it is you want to do. Because forgiveness will always be there for you, it's like a safety net. What? Or Jude 1 in the ESV, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people. Why are they so ungodly? Because they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. To pervert God's grace is to say that God's marvelous grace allows us or permits us to sin. God's grace is amazing. God's forgiveness is awesome. And it's so awesome that, you know what, you can sin, it's okay, just come back later and just ask for forgiveness, you're all right. And we hear this in our culture all the time. I hear this so many times, like, I've heard it before, is people fail time time and time and time and time and time and time again, and then you hear the question, yeah, but where's the grace? It's like, I think you're saying grace, but what you really mean is just leniency. You don't really mean grace where God is teaching you something. What you mean is just don't be judgy and weird. Just let them do their thing. But that's not grace at all. Actually, it's a perversion of grace when we believe that because God will forgive us and grant us grace should we ask for it, that we now have freedom to go and send our brains out. And here's how I would put it, and this this is gonna feel, feel, it's gonna hit you, I think, because it hits me. I wrote it and deleted it and put it back in there because I was like, I have to. When grace is perverted, Jesus is in effect denied. Look at the last sentence in the Jude 1 NLT version. The condemnation of these people was recorded long ago because or for they have denied Jesus or look at the first sentence the first clause in Jude 1 on the bottom or is the last one sorry they have denied Jesus in other words if you believe that because of God's grace and because he will forgive you that now gives you freedom to sin you don't know Jesus. You just don't. And that's even if you got a bumper sticker on your car. You got Christian t-shirts filling up your closet. If you like have a devotional that you read every morning and you take a picture of it with your steaming hot cup of coffee and your journal and your Bible and your devotional... Even if you're in multiple small groups, taking multiple classes, and you're serving in multiple ministries, if you believe that God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ and the grace that he gives you is freedom to now sin, you don't know Jesus. Whoa. I don't know why you're clapping. That may be you. Because look at this, Hebrews 10, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Look, if you, if you receive the grace of God, supposedly, and you just continue to send your brains out, there's no sacrifice for your sin any longer. You've denied Jesus. Instead, what you can hope for is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Jeez. Because if anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without, the mer- without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? There is no other way to be forgiven except through Jesus Christ. And if we think that the forgiveness Jesus Christ offers us enables us to go continue to sin, all the while claiming we know Jesus, you profane the blood of the covenant, the spirit of grace is outraged, and the only thing you have to look forward to is not heaven, but fiery judgment. <laughs> good news. But it is good news it's good news because God doesn't ultimately abandon us but in God's mercy and because of God's grace he is relentless and he will pursue us and if we take the redemption and blessing that we have in Jesus and this new identity and relationship we have where God tells us to go live this way but we say no I won't live that way God will in his way, bring us back to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, minute. this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. And he will call us to repentance. No, 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 stop and come back to me. And what God does is just blows my mind that he would take wayward people who have forgotten him and abandoned him and he will once again come back. And once again, I'll pick you up, I'll clean you off, I'll remind you of who I am, I'll reestablish our relationship, and then I'll send you off, reminding you that my grace is sufficient for you. Keep at it, keep trusting. And he will not reject us or abandon us. And why that's good news is every single one of us, this past week, could probably identify at least one time that you and I got above our raisin, where we forgot God. Forgot our identity in Christ and forgot to honor him with everything we do. Am I wrong? No. And this is God's mercy. Come to me. And here's God's grace. And I will remind you of myself and reestablish our relationship. We don't deserve that. That's verse one. Now let's go back to Hosea, chapter two. Two through... Eight will be one section, nine through 13 will be the next section. This first section is all about how the Israelites and how you and I can often misunderstand and misapply God's blessings. In verse two, we see uh, God is pleading with Israel, but how God does that is through this kind of picture of, remember Hosea and Gomer, they're married, Gomer is the wife who is not faithful to the marriage covenant, and Hosea is the husband who is faithful, and so God is kind of putting himself in Hosea's shoes or Hosea is acting on behalf of God. That kind of, hopefully you're tracking with that. And so God says, plead with your mother, plead. In other words, he's talking to the brothers and sisters. He's talking to individual Christians. You need to plead with the people, the nation at large. You need to plead individuals with the church. Why? Because the church, or Israel, is not my wife, and I'm not her husband. In other words, the church has abandoned the covenant faithfulness, like how a wife or a husband can abandon their marriage covenant faithfulness. They're acting as though it's not true that we're married. It's like a husband saying to his wife, wife, we're married. I'm your husband. What are you doing? Since you are my wife, act like it. It's that kind of thing. Now, what is he pleading? He's pleading that she would stop her adultery. Or spiritually speaking, that God's people would stop their idolatry. He says, plead that she would put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. I just want to be done, God says. I want you to be done with all of your spiritual adultery. I want you to be done with that lifestyle. Come back to me. Return to me. That's repentance. It's kind of what we see in Jeremiah 3. Go and proclaim these words to the north, God says to Jeremiah, and say to them, return. Oh, faithless, faithless Israel declares the Lord, Return. I will not look on you in anger, for I'm merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Come back to me, my bride. Don't act as though we're not married. Be faithful to me. I'm begging you. And the people would oftentimes come back to God, but they wouldn't come back to God in a wholehearted way. They would come back to God in a shameful way. They would continue to live the way they were living, but they would give lip service to God. And you can see that throughout the Old Testament. And God says, because sometimes the people would say something like this, God, (laughs) these prophets and these preachers, they keep telling us that we need to repent of our sin, but the reality is we know that you love us. And there's no way that you would mistreat us. You love us. So these prophets, we're just gonna kill them and get them out of our way. They're not being super positive and encouraging. After all, aren't you the God who is abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious? (laughs) What is all this talk of discipline and judgment? And they would come back into the house of worship and try to worship God, and God says, I will not accept this. Now, how exactly is Israel being unfaithful? You see, in verse three and four, it's, the offer of repentance, but if they refuse to repent, God says, you know what? Then I'm gonna make you as the day you were born, naked. You're gonna have nothing. I'm gonna strip you bare. Just like you were in the wilderness, just like you were when you were parched in the parched land, just like you were on the death's doorstep when you were dying of thirst. That's what I'm gonna do to you. And we remember that's exactly where God met Israel in the first place, right? Out of Egypt, into the wilderness. They were so thirsty, God provided for them. And God's like, dude, I blessed you the whole time. And now you don't want me? Okay. Then I'm pulling back. And you can thirst. And you can die with nothing. Verse five. What exactly, how exactly is Israel being unfaithful? And the answer is adultery. Spiritual adultery or idolatry. For their mother has played the whore, verse five. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. And how she acted shamefully? Because Israel... She said, I will go after my lovers, that is, other lovers besides my husband, who is God. I will go after other gods. And these other gods, these other idols, they will give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And so we understand idolatry to be worship of a false god. And many of us in this room probably think we're not idolaters, we don't have little statues and we don't bow down to them. But the Bible describes other things as idols. And actually in uh, Colossians three, covetousness is described as idolatry. Now what does it mean to covet? It means you long for something, you want it. The new iPhone that you dream about, you're coveting. That's idolatry, you're single 20, something year old and everyone else is getting married and their Instagram is filled with all kinds of lovely things and you just beg and cry for God to give you a marriage. Okay? You're committing idolatry. Because idolatry is anything that absorbs our heart and minds more than God. It's anything that we seek to give us what only God can give us, like meaning and value It's something so central to our life that if we were to lose it, we would feel like life is no longer worth living. Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, this. He says, idolatry can be family and children, career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim. It could be social standing, romantic relationships, peer approval, competence and skill, security, beauty, brains, Social and political causes, your morality, your virtue, success in Christian ministry. It's whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I only had that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. And then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. If I only had that, whatever that is. So how do you discern whether or not you have idols in your life? Keller goes on to give a couple steps and I think these are really good. The first thing is this. He asked the question, where do your thoughts go effortlessly when there's nothing else demanding your attention? Let me ask you, when you're sitting in a class with boring or maybe right now you're bored out of your mind with this sermon. (laughs) What are you thinking about? I see a lot of 49ers jerseys. Can Phil hurry up and shut up so we can go get the snacks ready and go watch the game? Maybe that's your idol. What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What kind of potential scenarios do you create in your mind in order to secure happiness and comfort for yourself? A second way to discern the idols of your heart is maybe ask yourself the question, what happens to me inside or maybe externally when I pray and pray and pray for something but God doesn't give it to me? Do I get mad at Him? Do I respond with explosive anger or deep despair? Well, ask yourself this question, is there times in my life where I just explode with uncontrollable emotions? someone takes something from me or I lose something or it's threatened, am I just like, I just fly off the handle? Or am I overcome with fear where I can't even think straight and I'm willing to act sinfully in light of the fear? I'm so scared because something in my life is being threatened. You know, in 2020, some big thing happened in our culture and world. A lot of stuff got taken away. And how people responded was the way in which God says, here's what you really worship. Here's what you really want. They took the gyms from us, okay. They took the restaurants, they took my livelihood. They took this, they took that, whoever they are, whatever. But they took all this stuff from me and now there's nothing worth living for. And I'm not trying to make light of the fact that there's real mental illness, real anxiety, real depression over this last couple years, but I want to be on record as saying those realities oftentimes come because people have placed their hope in things in this world only. And when you only place hope in this world, should this world then take it from us or we lose it, you despair you need something outside of this world to latch onto to derive hope and to animate your life because of and so fear can be a controlling emotion we have fun you know. it's so funny cuz people are like you know, you know the mask wearing thing is like these people live in fear I'll never live in fear but I'm moving out of california why because of this, this, and this. Is that not fear? Are you not being fearful that God is no longer in control of the politics of California or this, that, and the other? And are you you not being fearful that you may not be able to make ends meet and taxes are high and all this kind of stuff? Is that not fear? And all that to say, all of us fear something. And all of us feel deeply, oh, Lord, help. And it also exposes our idols. Therefore, here's what God does to win back us to himself, to win back his bride. Here's oftentimes what God does. Verse six, therefore, in light of this idolatry, which is so prevalent in God's people, even in you and I, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Okay, if marriage is your idol, God in His infinite grace will prolong your singleness until you learn God is your satisfaction, not some marriage partner. Now, we don't like to hear that, but that's the reality. And He goes on, verse 7 She shall pursue her lovers, Israel will pursue her idols. Fame and wealth and power and prestige and big fancy stuff but not overtake them in order they'll never get them. She shall seek them but she shall not find them. You'll work yourself to the bone and you'll never get what you really were wanting. And all of us know this, man, we set our hopes on certain things and all of a sudden we're like, the day is here, yeah. And then it, you get it and you're like, that's it. And you feel this utter letdown. <laughs> and you're like, all right, I got to find something else then. And that's God trying to help us understand that thing, that's, that's not what satisfies. And that next thing, that's not going to satisfy either. I will satisfy you, God says. And so he goes on. Then she will say, Israel will say, oh, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. In other words, Israel had God and all the blessings and all the joys and all the relationship and they're like, "Yeah, that's kind of weak. I'm gonna go over here. This is what matters. Military power and lots of finances and security and safety and comfort. That will satisfy. Oh man, I lost all this stuff. I live in a perpetual state of fear. I'm scared out of my mind. I'm going back to God. And so you hit proverbial rock bottom, you go back to God, and God will help me, God will give me all the stuff I'm searching for. But don't you want God? See, you had him, and the stuff, but you gave up on both in order to get this stuff, but now you don't have that stuff, but you want to go back to God to get the other stuff. You never loved God, you never loved your idols, you only love one thing, and that's yourself. You've only loved yourself, what I can get and what I can receive. And so that's why God is going to do verse 8. She didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they ended up using for idolatry. I gave you your athletic ability, and you took it and you made it an idol. And you ignored me. So I'm taking it back. That's what God did to me. In 2004, when I could no longer play baseball anymore. Because my eyes had gotten off of God. And I made baseball an idol. And I forgot who God was. And in order to win me back, God says, I'm going to take away the distractions. And I'm going to make it so that you have to face your idols. And so I can satisfy you with myself. So I was at Hume Lake Christian camp because I didn't get to play professional baseball like my dreams were. That's where my dreams went. And then I went on this long hike and I was out in the woods overnight and I had a journal with me and a Bible. And it was there that the Lord was like, do you not love me? And I had to confess, no, God, I only love what you can do for me. And I remember being in those woods, and I remember coming back to Hume Lake, and I remember just going, dude, how did I get this far off? And it was from that point forward, it was like, okay. Mm -hmm. I got to make Jesus my everything, or else I am screwed. Therefore, verse 9, this is how God disciplines us, and I know it from personal experience. This is how God works. You you think your false gods gave you all this stuff? Well, I'm going to take back my grain because I was the one who gave it to you in the first place. I'm going to take back my wine because it was mine in the first place. And I will take away my wool, not your wool, not your false god's wool, my wool and my flax. You forgot me. You forgot I'm the giver of all good things. I'm taking all my good things back since you cannot and do not appreciate me. So we read in Deuteronomy 8, God gives a warning to the people of Israel that when you come into the land and everything starts going good and you're being multiplied and you're being blessed, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has given me this wealth. I did it. It's my education. I got into UCLA. I got into Yale. I'm the one that wakes up early every morning and fights the commute and gets to work. I'm the one that brings home the bacon. I'm the one who works hard. I'm the one who's creative. I'm the one that does this. I do it. And God says, how do you think you got the ability in the first place? He goes on, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to you as it is this day. In other words, God's saying, look, I'm the one behind it all. I gave it to you in the first place in order for you to use it for my glory. And if you're going to use it for your glory, I'm going to take it back. Because there's going to be no glory greater than mine. Oh, Oh. In verse 11, I will put an end to her mirth. We don't use that word mirth. It's a weird word. It means the kind of excitement or joy that you have, like, when you're at a party. Like, what we will all experience later this evening when the 49ers win. But God says, that's going to be done. No more feasts, no more new moons, no more Sabbaths, no more appointed feasts. I'm going to lay waste to everything she has. Verse 13, and I will punish her for the feast of the days of Baal's, when she burned offerings. When she adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry. That is, when you and I show the world our idolatry, all for the world to see so that we we can get it, we can receive accolades. God says, they went after other lovers. She was my wife. And she went after other lovers. And he closes by saying, she forgot me. I wasn't enough for her, I guess. As a husband... I try to put myself in his shoes, oh, I would be undone. Undone. If I was Hosea, I'm undone. And God, this is amazing because he strips Israel of all this stuff, but he has a reason for it. Let's go to Hebrews 12 real quick. We'll close with, not, no, no, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, verse five. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, the Hebrews writer says? He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by God, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. If God just left you to destroy your own life, God wouldn't love you very much. But the fact is, God loves you so much, he's not going to sit by and watch you destroy your life. He's going to discipline you. I'm going to take some of the stuff. And for me, that was so reassuring. I had a dad who instilled discipline in my life, but I have a greater father who disciplines me in love and strips me naked so to make sure that I don't trust or rely on anything but him. Besides this, you have an earthly father who disciplined us and we respect him for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? You see, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Because remember, remember, Righteousness or holiness or godliness is the product of grace. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Oh, duh. But discipline will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is the grace of God in our lives to cause righteousness to be produced in us. And God is motivated to discipline us because he loves us since we are legitimate children of his. Now we're gonna close with this. It's a letter that the Spirit records for us, Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea it's famous because of the lukewarm stuff, but I want to show you how it could affect us today. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot, cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus counsels us to buy from him gold refined by fire, that is, riches in heaven, so that we may be rich. A white garment, so that you may, be, so that you may clothe yourselves and, sh- and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. That goes back to the robes of Righteousness and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see with clear spiritual vision. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, this is the grace and mercy of God. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I won't reject you. I will welcome you. You will be my people. But you gotta turn from your idols and you gotta come back to me. Don't get above your raisin. You know what I've done for you in redeeming you from sin in Jesus. You know the identity I've given you as my treasured possession, a holy nation, kingdom of priests. We have relationship. I'm asking you to live in light of that. When you fail, Just repent and turn back and look and remember all that I've done. Come back, remind yourself of your position with me, forgiven, redeemed, restored, and then go and walk faithfully with me. After all, God is the God of mercy and grace, and he loves us with a profound and unrelenting love. So for the first time today, come to Jesus or if you've been drifting from Jesus, come back to him. Father, we do pray, indeed, that would happen. God, that you would restore us and renew us, revive us by the Holy Spirit. God, cause within us an excitement, not because we've been entertained today, but because we've been reminded of your grace. Your grace, which trains us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Your grace, which reminds us of how much you love us, how much you're willing to give us. And as many people have uh, said, grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. And we know that by the shed blood of Jesus, you have purchased for us all of the promises of God. And that's why they're yes in him. And because Jesus is raised from the dead, we can be guaranteed that all that you said is true. You will have us as your own. You will not reject us. And so, Father, as we close this service, singing and reminding ourselves of these truths, kindle in us a zealous passion for good works and a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ in loving you by loving each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.